to collect the tithes and the offerings. Amen.
full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings are full of eyes, all around and within, and day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whatever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. Oh 
Good morning, Richview. Is it just me, or was the worship really on fire today? Was it just me? No? No? Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah. Good job, guys. Um, I figured that it would only be polite to introduce myself because we've never had the occasion of me speaking to you. So, uh, in case you don't know who I am, my name is Ian. I am your pastoral intern uh, from Tyndale University College and Seminary. And uh, if you want to congratulate me, feel free to, because I'm graduating in a month. And then I'll be done. (laughs) Thank you. So I want to tell you guys a little bit about myself, because the the topic and the theme today is, who is this? Meaning, who is Jesus? But as it turns out, chances are you guys don't know who I am too well. So I figured I would give you guys uh, the five-minute bullet point of who Ian is. So I'm born and raised in Etobicoke, lived by the lake for my entire life, so 24 years, and as I said earlier, I'm in my final year of seminary. Now the thing is, I was not raised in a Baptist church, I was raised in a Presbyterian church. The thing is that I didn't actually know anything about Jesus. By the time I was a teenager, I had already left the church. I figured, why inconvenience myself getting up on a Sunday morning, you have to get up early, you have to get dressed, You have to be presentable, and you have to meet a bunch of people that you don't know, you don't really care about, and who don't really care about you. So I figured, why am I wasting my time? I figured it'd be better for me to sleep in for an extra hour or two hours. Typical teenager, am I right? (laughs) Now the thing is that I was incredibly socially awkward as a child and as a teenager. I didn't know how to relate to people, and that meant that I was very awkward. And I mean awkward in the sense of we would have a conversation, but I would never let you in. I would keep you at a safe distance, far away. When people would poke fun at me, I wouldn't know what to do, and I'd just kind of get very self-conscious, and I'd just pull in, and I wouldn't respond. And what I found is that when I made friends in high school, people that I liked and who liked me, I didn't actually know how to relate to them. I found that instead of being open and honest, to share who I was with people, I preferred to mislead them. 
to lie to them, to tell them, no, sorry, I can't come to that party because, you know, my aunt is not well. Or, you know, I, I have another thing that I'm going to. Oh, what thing are you going to? Oh, it's this thing. And I would lie all the time because I was afraid of being open and honest with the people that I knew. And unfortunately, I became so afraid of being honest and telling people once that I wanted to become open with them that I had lied to them. So I was kind of stuck where I couldn't really do anything. And because of it, I became miserable. Until one night when I was 17 years old, I heard someone's testimony about how they had experienced pain and loss and suffering, and then they met Jesus. And on that night, I saw someone whose pain was removed. Their loneliness was gone, their sadness was gone, and instead they had happiness, joy, a sense of peace. And I was envious. I wanted that. And on that night, I opened up in a way I never had before. I decided that I was going to make that leap. And I did. And on that night, someone challenged me. They challenged me to let Jesus into my life. To see what he would do for me in my life. And it took two weeks. Two weeks. But two weeks later, I was sitting in a church pew and I felt a kick in the back, right where my spine is. Kick. And I had to go. I had to move. And on that day, I decided that I was going to live for Christ. And that year, I was baptized. And within two years, I had abandoned my career path. I wanted to be a lawyer, to become a politician. The joke was growing up that I wanted to be Prime Minister of Canada. I like that you guys are laughing at it because it's still pretty funny to me too. (laughs) But the thing was that I had decided that that was no longer going to be the way I was going to live. That the reasons I wanted to be a lawyer were not right for me. So if you are a lawyer, don't feel as if I'm disparaging you in any way. There are plenty of godly lawyers, and if you meet any, let me know. (laughs) Ouch, I know, right? No, it's okay. We need godly lawyers, and I love you guys. But the thing was that I couldn't do it. I had to live my life, and my life with Jesus said that I needed more. And that meant that I had to live a life in ministry. I thought I was going to be a missionary. Turns out that wasn't the life for me. Instead, I found that I had a voice. I had a voice to preach to people, to take the message of Scripture and to present it to them in a way that they could understand and to convict their heart. That is my life up till now. Now, you may know a little bit about me, but how confident would you feel trying to tell someone who I am? The thing is, you may know things about me, but you don't have any shared lived experiences with me to be able to point to and say, you know that one time when Ian did that one thing? That's how I know who he is. You don't have that. Now, imagine you had to tell people who Jesus is. You see... You can say he's the son of God, he died for your sins, he's the Messiah, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. You can say these things, we can use words, but what if there was a way to show people instead of telling people? You see, in the New Testament there is plenty written about Jesus, telling you who he is, what he's done for you, and why it matters. But we see in the Gospel of Luke plenty of examples of Jesus doing things. He is in action. He's ready to go. 
And he does such extraordinary things that people have to stop and look and say, who is that guy? So today we're going to be looking at three events in the Gospel of Luke. And these three events all contain the phrase, who is this or who am I? So our first story comes from Luke chapter 5, verse 17, all the way till 21. One day Jesus was teaching, and the Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? You see, Jesus does something ridiculous by his people's standards. Jesus tells this man his sins are forgiven. Now, Jesus isn't a priest. He's not a Levite. And even if he was, they don't forgive people's sins. They just observe that God has forgiven you for your sin. Only God has the authority to forgive sin. So why is Jesus claiming that he could do it? Does he really think that he's God? This is what's going on in the minds of the people that he's seeing. So Jesus asks them, he said, okay, which is easier for me to say your sins are forgiven or to tell this paralyzed man to get up and walk? Well, obviously it's the first one, right? I can point at you and say your sins are forgiven. Doesn't mean anything. How are you supposed to know? Can you tell? Not really. It's a thousand times more difficult for me to walk up to a paralyzed person and say, hey man, get up. Well, he's paralyzed. He can't walk. All it takes is for him not to stand up, and I'm a fraud. But if Jesus can do the greater miracle, the more visible miracle, of getting the paralyzed man to walk, then maybe he does have the authority to forgive sins. So Jesus tells the guy, get up and walk. And so the paralyzed man does. And Jesus turns to the crowd and says, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And when the people see this, they praise God. They, they've seen a miracle. But to the close observer, it's more than that. It's not just a miracle. It's Jesus showing people who he really is. He is someone who can forgive sins. Someone with the authority of God. So as we keep reading in Luke, we come to chapter 8. And we have this strange story of Jesus and his disciples in a boat. One day, Jesus said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake, so that the boat was being swamped, and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided, and all was calm. Where is your faith? he asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. All right, what's the big deal? He, we've already seen Jesus 
heal a paralyzed man. That is a miracle. I've never done that. I don't know anybody who's ever done that. But for some reason, the disciples see Jesus calming the storm, and they're even more amazed than they were with a paralyzed man. You see, there's a bit of a problem of context. Because when we look at the sea, we see it as a way of transportation. We see it as a place for fun, where you can go surfing, or you can go swimming. Maybe you want to relax and just do some fishing. We don't typically see the sea as something threatening to us. But to this culture, to these ancient peoples, the sea represented chaos. It was unpredictable. It was fierce. One second it's calm, another second you have gale force winds and waves the size of mountains crashing down on you. And they didn't exactly have the best boats. The sea was treacherous. It was a threat to their life. And remember, some of the disciples are fishermen. They're used to being on the water. And even still they're afraid. Within the Old Testament, God is seen as the one who wrestles with the sea. He wrestles with chaos. He bends it to his will. By rebuking the storm, Jesus does something that no other prophet had done. He commands the weather. Other prophets prayed to God and then they, God intervened. But no prophet had the authority to command the waters or the wind. Jesus stands and tells the waves to be still. He doesn't pray and ask God to do it. This is extraordinary because only God could do this. Only God could command the weather like that. So who is this Jesus then, the disciples ask? He is someone with God-like power. And our final story comes to us in Luke 9. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Now, the crowds no doubt say a lot of things. They'd been around, they'd seen miracles, but they'd probably heard of even more rumors of miracles. But the thing is that what they think actually does not matter. Because they're not committed to Jesus. They haven't devoted their lives to Jesus. They're just there, witnessing. What really matters is what the disciples think. Because they're the people who have dedicated their lives to follow Jesus, to absorb his teaching, to become like him. In the same way, it doesn't really matter what our non-Christian, secular society thinks about Jesus. Because they haven't given their lives to him. They don't have to carry the standard, the flag of Jesus, wherever they go. But to the church, it does matter. How we see Jesus affects the type of disciples that we're going to be. So Jesus asks the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds, calling Jesus the Messiah. At which point, Jesus says, don't say another word. Keep it to yourself. Wait a second, did he get it right or not? I don't understand. Usually when you get the answer right, they're like, yep, go tell, on the, go tell it on the mountain. Why would Jesus tell the disciples to be quiet about him being the Messiah? Well, so I did a little bit of research, and I found that within Jesus' lifetime, there were two pretend messiahs that had raised the revolution 
and been absolutely destroyed by the Romans. People believed that Messiah would lead them into freedom. There would be a political revolution and Israel would no longer be under Rome's authority. But that's not what Jesus meant when he came proclaiming the kingdom of God. Jesus tells the disciples that he has to suffer, that he has to be betrayed, handed over to be killed. This isn't really consistent with the type of Messiah that people were waiting for. Now imagine this way. You're an outside observer, and you hear the disciples going on about how Jesus has to die, be handed over, and then in three days he's going to be risen up. They're going to be confused. Wait a second. That's not the Messiah. That's not the one we're waiting for. Think about it this way. Even the disciples, people who were the closest to Jesus, what did they do when Jesus was arrested? They cut and run. Surely they would have known who the Messiah was. Surely they would have known who Jesus was. And yet, for whatever reason, they bailed. If the disciples mistook what the Messiah meant, what chance did the crowds or the public have? Here we see Jesus presenting his image of who the Messiah is. Regardless of what other people thought, this is Jesus claiming the authority to define who the Messiah is. And he warns the disciples to expect pain, to, accept, to expect death, to expect suffering. Who is this Jesus? Who am I? He is someone who owns the title of Messiah. Now, Jesus' identity is crucial to us as believers because it defines the type of people that we want to be. If Jesus is rude to people, it gives us an occasion to be rude to people. If Jesus is unkind to people, it gives us a reason to be unkind to people. Luckily for us, that is not the case. But the question is, how do we as believers live our lives in such a way that we can share our faith with our friends, with our family, with our co-workers, with our neighbors. It's clear that somehow we have to attract people's attention the same way that Jesus did. And let me suggest that there are three ways that we can show through our lives who Jesus is and what he means for us. Forgiveness, love, and pursuing after God. So let's start with forgiveness. Show of hands, how many people have hurt someone that they know? Okay, that's about right. There are a few of you. Don't wait about it. It'll, uh, it'll come around eventually. The thing is, face it, if you've lived with people, chances are you've hurt them. You've done something that you need forgiveness for. Maybe you forgot about dinner or an anniversary, or you forgot about your kid's soccer game. Maybe you insulted someone. Maybe you gave them a backhanded compliment. You didn't even think about it. Maybe you cheated on your spouse. Maybe you hurt a friend's feelings. Everybody needs forgiveness sometime. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus tells us, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. We've all sinned against God in one way, shape, or another. We've lied, we've cheated, we've stolen, we've lusted after someone, we are envious of someone else's success or their accomplishments or their house or whatever. 
And despite all that, God forgives us. So too do we need to forgive others. Now, you might be thinking, well, Ian, you're just super naive. I've been hurt real, real bad. And I just can't let it go. Who are you to tell me that I just have to forgive? You're right. But let me challenge you a little bit, just for the sake of it. Perhaps you remember the horrific attack in Charleston two years ago. Someone went into a church prayer meeting and they shot and killed nine people. Now imagine that happened here. How would you respond? Perhaps you'd be angry. I'd be angry. How dare he hurt my family? I hope he rots in jail. He's an animal. I hope he suffers for what he's done. Some in Charleston even hoped that the shooter, the shooter would go straight to hell. Thing is, I get that. I understand. When someone wrongs us, we can hold on to it. Sometimes it feels really good to be angry with someone. We can feel superior. I'm up here. I didn't do anything wrong. They hurt me, not the other way around. It can feel good. But sometimes we're just hurt. We're in pain. And we need someone to heal us, but we don't know how to do it. What amazes me about the Charleston attack isn't the fact that someone shot and killed nine people in a church. What amazes me is the response that the church gave. One woman said to him, If at any point before you are sentenced and you're in prison and you want me to come and pray with you, I will do that. Oh. Another woman said, I will never talk to my mother ever again. I will never be able to hold her again, but I forgive you. Oh, dagger through my heart. Who are these people? They suffer immense tragedy, and their first response is forgive. Oof, that place is a weight on my shoulders. You know who these people are? These people are servants of Jesus. They're disciples of Christ. By forgiving others, we witness to other people that God first forgave us. And if he has forgiven us of our sins that are so big, surely we can forgive people of the sins against us that are so small in comparison. We recognize that God forgiving us leaves us no space no room whatsoever to not forgive those who have hurt us. Now, closely linked to forgiveness is love. Now, I'm not talking about Valentine's Day love. I'm talking about the deep-seated care and concern we have for our fellow mankind. Now, my favorite example of this actually comes not from real life, but from a story. Perhaps you know it. Uh, the story of Les Miserables. The main character in this story is Jean Valjean. He's a convict. Uh, he is released on probation. He comes to stay with a bishop because no one else will let him in. Now, this bishop offers him hospitality. He enjoys dinner. He gets a bed to sleep in. And then Jean Valjean promptly robs him. He takes all of his silver and he's out. Come the morning, the police drags Jean Valjean all the way back to the church, holds him almost by the scruff of his neck, in front of the bishop and says, is this the man who robbed you? And the bishop says, no, my friend, what is your problem? You forgot the candlesticks. And the police are like, what are you talking about? 
wait, you gave him these things? Bishop says, of course I gave him these things. Here, please, take the candlesticks and go. So the police run away. And Jean Valjean is just stunned looking at this guy. And the bishop tells him, take the silver, make an honest life for yourself. Know that with this silver, I have purchased your soul for God. Oh, I love that story. I love that story. Think about it if you're in the bishop's shoes. A rough, really, really mean-looking guy comes to your door. Knocks on the door. Do you let him in? Uh, nope. Probably not. Then he's like, okay, can I stay for dinner? I mean, you already let him in, so sure, maybe. Then he wants a place to stay. I mean, I'd love to, but, you know, the couch is designer-made, and we don't really want him. No, you're not going to let him in. But let's say you do, maybe you let him stay. And then he robs you. What are you going to do? Call the police. Yeah, he just robbed you. Call the police. They're going to sort it out. They'll bring him back. Not the bishop, though. The bishop loves Jean Valjean so much that he dismisses the offense against him. He forgets the fact that Jean Valjean robbed him, that he betrayed his hospitality. He doesn't care. What the bishop is most concerned about is the soul of Jean Valjean. He wants to make him right with God. And the only way he can do that is by showing him extraordinary love. He forgives him. And he loves him. And this event changes the entire story. The story of the bishop forgiving a convict is one of the reasons why I wanted to be a pastor. Because I wanted to have that position where I could love people and show them grace in a way that I didn't think anybody else could. But I was wrong. You don't have to be a bishop or a pastor or anybody of any importance to love anyone. The greatest commandment Jesus gives us is what we've already heard today, to love one another as I have loved you. We cannot love God unless we love our neighbor. There is no way Jesus tells us that if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Commandment to love one another? What are you going to do? The thing is, if you live this way, where you love people in an extraordinary way, that attracts people. They think, what is going on? Who is this guy? And what is up with them? There's something different about them. By loving people this way, we show them who Jesus is. Someone who loves us. Now the last is the pursuit after God. So let me ask you, where is your life headed? What is your purpose? Can I share with you something? Instead of sharing with you an example from my life or from our world, let me share with you something from Jesus' life. Can I share with you the purpose of Jesus' life? It's this. This is the purpose of Jesus' life. Surely Jesus could have done better than going to a cross. I mean, the man can heal any injury. He can raise people from the dead. 
Listen, if you're hungry, the man made water turn into wine, and he can cause bread and fish to multiply. Why didn't he set up shop in a hospital? Free cures for everybody. He could have started his own food bank. He could have had everybody fed and cared for. And the guy could teach. Oh, man. He could teach so well that people would sit there and their eyes would be bugging out of their heads thinking, what is that? How did he come up with that? I wish I could teach like that. And the thing is that he could have done anything he wanted because he was God. And yet no thing on this earth could deter him from the cross. You see, I used to think Jesus was the victim at the cross. But as I grew older and I became more mature, I realized that he wasn't the victim. He was the willing participant. The Bible has told us that all of us, every single one of us, has fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us has sinned. We are incapable of living without sin. That means that we're stuck in a sinful life where no matter what we do or what we try and think of, positive thinking, useless. The wages of sin is death. We couldn't get out even if we wanted to. None of us could break the cycle. But one. The only one who could break this cycle was Jesus. Why? Number one, because he's God. But number two, because he was truly without sin. He was the spotless lamb. Only Jesus could break through. He had to go to the cross. It wasn't an option. If not, humanity would not be saved. We worship not a God who has gigantic temples where we offer sacrifices asking him to bless us. We don't worship a God because he desires to be glorified for the sake of being, you know, first among all others. We worship a crucified Savior. We worship a crucified God. And he willingly paid the price for everyone's sin. Yours, mine, everybody. Now you may be thinking, I didn't ask him to do that. He didn't have to do that for me. Why should I have to do anything about it? He died for you because the alternative is death. Your sins have consequences. If you don't do anything about it, then you will die. So what does a loving God do? Does he just stand there and say, well, you know, I gave him the choice. They could have done anything. But so what? What's the saying? You make the bed you sleep in? We have all sinned, every last one of us, but Jesus paid the ultimate price so we can have eternal life instead of death. God's love for the world was so precious, was so great, that he gave up what was most precious to him so that the debt for our sins could be paid, so that we could be forgiven and returned to God. So then how do we honor this sacrifice? What is most precious to you? And what are you willing to give up for God? What shall we do with this death that hangs over our conscience? 
We cannot allow ourselves to become ordinary, where you're just there. There's nothing remarkable about you. You attract no one. And I'm not talking about being smarter or faster or better looking or more presentable. I'm not talking about those things. And it's not enough to just say, I read my Bible, I attend church weekly, I pray textbook prayers. To live your life as if nothing has changed. Because after accepting Jesus as your Savior, being born again in the waters of baptism, and receiving the Holy Spirit, everything, everything has changed. A Christian social scientist found that the number one reason that people in the United States did not want to attend church wasn't because they thought Christians were bad or that it was uncomfortable. They didn't want to go because they thought that their life would not be changed by going to church. My friends, I pray that is never said about us. Becoming a Christian doesn't mean you can't want nice things. That you can't want a family or have a good job, a nice car, nice clothes. We're still human beings. But we cannot allow these things to become our purpose in life. To allow this to become the reason why we exist on this earth. Because we are new creations in Christ. And his will for us is to seek first the kingdom of God. Not second, not third, not fourth, but first. The kingdom of God. And all else will be added to you. All else. That, right there, the cross is the reason why we exist. It is the reason why we were saved, so that way we can point to it and witness to who Jesus is and what he has done, so that every person on this planet might know that he died for their sins, so that whoever believes in him might have eternal life. That is our purpose. That is the reason why we exist, to point to Jesus, to say, this is who he is. And then Jesus said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will gain it. Save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? If you've never heard it before, hear it now and hear it true. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. In Christ alone, we find forgiveness for our sins. And we find God's perfect, holy, pleasing will for our lives. And be afraid. Be afraid that your life will consist of running from one fruitless desire to another, never finding satisfaction. Be afraid that that might be your life. Because Jesus alone can satisfy my soul. Jesus alone can satisfy my soul. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. This is how we show people who Jesus is. Loving one another. Forgiving one another. And pursuing God and his kingdom with an eagerness that makes zero sense to anyone outside of the church.
That is how we show people who Jesus is. This is the command of Jesus. To go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, always, to the very end of the age. Let that be so in my life and yours. Let that be so. So as the music team comes back up, let's just bow for a moment of prayer. Father God, you are so amazing. You are so great. And we stand here and we think of what you have done for us. If there is any reason for this Lent period, it is to reflect on your sacrifice on you paying for our sins because we first sinned, you had to suffer. But Lord, we know that the story does not end there. We know that there is Easter Sunday to go with Good Friday. That Jesus was raised from the dead, and with that we have the hope of eternal, everlasting life. Bless us, Lord. Forgive us when we stumble. Raise us up when we fall. And above all else, Lord, never stop sending your Spirit into our lives to kick us when we stop, when we forget to focus on the cross. To you, Lord, we give honor and praise. Amen. Amen. Um, We're going to respond this morning. Um, If you need to get your children, by all means, you can go get your children right now. Um, but we're going to sing Amazing Love, and I'd like you guys to stand, please. You my 
amazing love how can you be she my king when time for me amazing love I know it's true it's my joy to As we go this week, know that you have heard both the gospel of Jesus Christ and his commandments to us to not live for ourselves, but to live for him, for his purposes, to go making disciples of all nations. As you go this week, I pray that you may live extraordinary lives, not because you are the brightest, the fastest, or the strongest, because but because in you, the Spirit of God lives, and it is strong and attracts all peoples. Go now in peace.